welcome to Moonwise, a monthly podcast featuring conversations with women of power. I'm your host, Dorte Sophie Royal, and in this episode, we bring you my conversation with author Jacqueline Freeman about listening to the bees. We talk about reverence and how she came to learn about natural beekeeping from the hive itself. We discuss how the bee's sense of unity has influenced Jacqueline's own human relationships, including her marriage and approach to housework. We talk about bee songs, the magic of pollination, birth as a ritual, and how bees approach the death process. Before we begin, I want to thank our newest Patreon subscriber, Jessica Varco Bianchi. Your contributions help make this show possible, and I'm honored to be in community with all of you. Join us at patreon.com slash moonwise. I'd also like to make an announcement about a shift in structure to the podcast. I know so many of you enjoy our monthly lunar forecasts with Susan Lipschitz of Everyday Medicine Woman and are wondering where they went. I've been making some adjustments in my work life due to health issues and increased demands in my personal life. To be honest, I burned out this winter and have had to scale back. So I made the decision to focus exclusively on sharing interviews for the time being. Susan will continue to share her wise insights about astrology on her channels, so be sure to follow her on Instagram at Susan Lipschitz and on Facebook, Everyday Medicine Woman. You can sign up for her newsletter as well at everydaymedicinewoman.com. Susan and I plan to continue to collaborate in the future via seasonal Zoom calls and online workshops, so please stay tuned for that. Okay, on with our show. Jacqueline Freeman is a biodynamic farmer and natural beekeeper who wrote the popular book, Song of Increase, listening to the wisdom of honeybees for kinder beekeeping and a better world. She and her husband, Joseph, moved onto their biodynamic farm in Southwest Washington in 2001, and she got her first hive soon after. She attended conventional bee school and immediately knew there must be a different way to care for bees that is more respectful, more compassionate, more like the way feral bees live. A few years later, she began teaching this bee-centric approach in her classes. Hi, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm so glad to be here in my own home. This is so nice. (laughs) This is really sweet. This is one of the rare times that I get to go to someone's place of work or where they live and really get a feel for the energy surrounding them. And your land is so beautiful and your home is so beautiful. So thank you for having me. The plants and I all welcome you. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And I wanted to let you know that before I came over, I did make some offerings in my little backyard area in Portland to Mother Nature And just to say thank you, and I hope that this conversation is beneficial to the earth. (laughs) And uh, I was also wondering, I was thinking like, what kind of offerings would bees want? And the only thing I could think of was maybe to plant some purple flowers in the next couple weeks. But what what would you say? They would like that. They would love that. Blue and purple flowers are their favorites. Okay, good. (laughs) I received your book from my dear friend, Tambor, and it absolutely, I don't even know what the word would be. I was reading it on an airplane and would read a couple pages, close my eyes, take a deep breath and just sit with what I had just Mm -hmm. (laughs) experienced. Um, The book is just so full of beauty and it's been recommended to me by many, many people. So I'm just so thrilled to have finally gotten a copy and read it. So thank you for your work. Thank you. That's really sweet to hear. 
I feel so little ownership of that book because it was really, the bees shared it with me and I wrote it down. So I feel more like a, a scribe than an author. <laughs> so I say thank you for the bees too. <laughs> yeah, that actually brings me to my first question, which is um, so much of your work seems to be about paying attention and listening with curiosity and reverence. And I wondered how you came to work with bees in that particular way. When I first, my husband and I bought this farm almost 20 years ago. And we both came from small towns in New England, and now we live in Washington. And we really didn't even have the intention of moving to a farm. It was just we wanted some land with rolling hills and forests and fields and, you know, more relationship to the outdoors. And so when we bought this farm, actually, we had no intention of having animals or bees or, or growing anything. <laughs> it was just a nice little home in the country. And... When we, uh, I think it was probably our, our second year here, our first year here, my neighbor down the hill, Brenda, came up one day and she said, you have a farm, you should have chickens. And we said, yeah, you know, that's a good idea. We should have chickens. We have room for them. And, and she said, good, because I have some in my back seat. <laughs> and she brought out a few extra chickens. She raises heirloom hens and she brought out a few chickens and gifted us with them, and we got started with chickens. And chickens are the gateway animal. They are, after you have chickens, you're wide open, you'll end up with cows. You'll end up with, goats, <laughs> you'll end up with bees and turkeys and all kinds of animals. And uh, bees were the second one. Uh, my girlfriend, Mary Helen, who lives in Portland, she came, called me one day and said, I have a friend who has a hive in her backyard, um, some people are moving, the new people don't want them there anymore, they've been sort of neglected for a few years, and you have a farm, you should have bees. And it's the same thing. I said, oh, that's a, that's a great idea, we should have bees too. So we went down and collected up that hive and brought them here, and that was my first bees. So you can see there was a pattern of, it wasn't that I actually had the intention to have any of these animals, it was just they sort of came to us, and that continued. So when we first got the bees, I had no background with them at all. And I remember getting all dressed up in, you know, it's like a hazmat suit, head to tail, you're, you're covered. And I would go down and sit on a chair next to them and watch them. And I realized fairly early on that they were not going to attack me. As a matter of fact, they had extremely little interest in me at all. <laughs> they just went on in and out of the hive. And every once in a while, one would just land on my arm, on my jacket or something, and I'd get to watch them a little bit more up close. But it just set me at ease. It's like, wow, this is a different relationship than I, I thought you'd have with an, a stinging insect. And that kind of carried me on. What really got me going, though, was because I got bees, I started taking a classes. I went to a basic bee class, and this was before bees became the new thing to have. Um, back then, nobody really was keeping bees. It was not a thing yet. I went to a conventional beekeeping class, and I realized that all of these things they were doing, treating with chemicals and feeding the bees sugar and killing the queens and replacing them with new ones. And and I just, every time they did a new thing, oh, my heart just shrank. It was just, oh, I, 
I would, I don't know what to do, but I'm pretty sure that's not the way I want to do this. And I don't want to be killing anybody, and I, I'm pretty sure I don't eat sugar myself, so I don't think I want to feed my bees sugar and take all their honey and, and many things like that. And I came home that day, I remember, and I sat down next to my bees, and I said, I don't know what to do, but I'm sure I don't want to do it the way that I'm being taught. So, and it was just a very sincere conversation, a one-sided conversation, I thought, where I said, you'll have to tell me what to do because I have no one on the outside. There are no books written yet about beekeeping, certainly none the way I wanted to do it, which was with respect. So that was, um, that was kind of my start. And I spent the next, I think it was probably six years trying the best I could to figure out what made sense here, how, what was respectful, what puts the bees' needs first rather than the humans' needs or desires. And then one morning I woke up and it was just at that place, I'm sure you know, the place between being awake and asleep, and I just had this like little voice talking in my head telling me something about bees. And, you know, I keep a journal. I had my journal next to the bed and I whipped it open and I wrote down just really like copying down, like a scribe, copying down what was being said. And then I woke my husband up and said, this is really strange. This is something about bees that I never knew, and I'm pretty sure I never read it anywhere. And I knew right away who it came from. It came from the bees. So the next morning, that happened again. And my husband volunteered. He said, if you get that, you you know, you stay with what you're doing. And Listen to them and just tell me and I'll write it down for you. So he scribed for my scribing. <laughs> um, and over the next few years, I had an enormous amount of information, and that's what turned into the book. At first, I thought it was just information for me, and I had started teaching bee classes at that point, and I would share this information every once in a while. You know, well, this is, you know, this is something practical about bees to know. But in the meantime, I have this other information that seems to come from the bees. And I would share it with people, and people were just hungry for it. There were many people in the class who were just like me. They were, I don't want to do it chemicalized. I don't want to do it disrespectfully. I want to do everything I do with my bees with love and care and respect. So when I started sharing this, I saw, hmm, there's a much bigger market for this that I should be sharing. And then I thought, I should probably write a book. And I thought, but I've never written a book before. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that was, well, we've done our side. So now it's your turn to do your side. Go learn how to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was what I did. I started figuring out how, how do you write chapters? How do you make a flow? It was really a fascinating process to write the book. And I learned so much about it. And sometimes... Sometimes the bees would, usually they just gave me information. I didn't have anything to, um, I, I didn't ask them questions and then they answered. It wasn't that kind of thing. It was more what I was ready to learn. But I did find that sometimes they would talk way over my head and I would have to go online and Google words and processes and you know just to understand what it was they were teaching me. And I found that really quite an amazing process. I got smarter 
because of them. <laughs> this is really like a an education, a, a give and take of knowledge that mm-hmm. they were um, opening up for you. There was one time when I asked them, actually, my friend Mikhail, uh, Mikhail Tilly, he asked me, he said, you know, I, I hear people call the bees, there's, there's only three kinds of bees in a hive. There's a queen, there's the drones that are the males, and then there's the workers. And he said, I've just never felt right calling them workers. That just doesn't seem respectful. He said, what did the bees call them? And so I, one of the rare times that I actually went and asked a question, I said, you know, what do you have a name for the, the females other than the workers? And they didn't answer me at all. They uh, actually explained something to me about the nature of sound. I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. And then I, the second day I went in and said, you know, is there another name that you have for the female bees and they explained some other aspect of something that seemed completely unrelated to what I was doing so the third time when I went back I said I'm not even going to ask the question because they're obviously not interested in answering it and then they explained to me how they hear the sound of the female bees and what they explained to me was that when we humans we humans come into the world and we, um, we express ourselves through the world. And then the sound of Om is when we take the, the whole world and bring it into our, our hearts and minds and souls and we center ourselves with it. So it's that Aum, bringing it the sound interior. The bees are exactly the opposite. They're born into oneness. And because they're born into oneness at, at when they're about a third of their lifespan is passed, only at that point do they actually go out into the world. And so their name is the sound of an ohm made in reverse. It's being one in the interior and then coming out and sharing it into the world. Now that was an amazing thing to me because they couldn't have told me that in the first explanation. I actually had to learn how they understood sound first and I had to understand the sequencing of their of their development before they come into the world in the bigger way so I don't know just constantly in amazement at the education I've received from them (laughs) yeah I was really taken by the description of the songs that the bees are living in together and I remember a particular passage that I can read here that really moved me um in which the bees say, Before and as they are being born, new bees hear a combined harmony of two songs that make up the creation song. From the maidens we hear, come and join the work, and from the drones we hear, come and join the world. And I, I, I actually could cry right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. I honestly <laughs> cried when I read that and put the book down to let it sink in. And something about the invitation and the balance moved me so much and it also made me think what if we could welcome humans in a in a way that would be right for humans of course we're different than bees but the potential really and they say that someone born without hearing the song of creation as they're being born into the world that that person doesn't know how they fit they don't know you know in in indigenous tribes have birth songs they sing because that's a way of welcoming, um, welcoming. 
saying, this is the history that you've come from. This is the world you're in right now. This is the future you walk into, and you fit right here. So, yeah, I'm with you. I think we should reinstitute singing at, at, the, birth, at the birth process, mm -hmm. that each child should come in or could come in knowing how they fit in the world. Mm -hmm. just makes so much more sense. It's such a more welcoming um, relationship with the world that I now live in. Mm -hmm. Especially as we find modern humans, there's a lot of interest now these days in what is my purpose or why am I here? And how do I fit? Right. People are searching for the answers. And if, yeah, if there were a way to convey what is it to be human and what is this community that you've been born into and what might your role be or become <laughs> would, yeah, it would really help. Well, another thing that really struck me about your book is the demonstrated way in which bees live in unity. And in particular, that understanding that they are all one and that human beings exist connected to each other, but believing that we're not. And so, yeah, I'm just curious about what you've learned about that. Being an individual has a a certain kind of weight to it. <laughs> you know, I grew up as being raised as a person whose goal was to be independent, um, that, that I'm responsible for making my own choices, that I walk my own path in the world. Um, you know, that's just a, a part of how, hopefully, how we're raised, that this is an important thing. And I certainly believed that up until, like, fairly recently in my life. I believed that it was important for us to each be independent, and yet the bees have a completely different skew on that. You know, that it's far more important to be of one. And I, my husband and I have been married for 25 years. You know, we've used that. We've taken that perception of unity, of being one with the world, one with each other, and it changes it significantly. You know, I've watched them the bees do things. I uh, One time I I screwed up something. I opened it up, up a hive and it was too warm and the wax was too hot and I, I bumped against a, a comb and it fell off, the, fell off the frame and it smooshed on the bottom of the, of the uh, hive and I just, I, immediately I went into guilt, <laughs> certainly <laughs> guilt for sure, um, admonishing myself about, oh, you stupid, you look what you just did, and now you made a mess, and now everybody's got to go clean up after you. And, you know, I was definitely on the, not on being nice to myself about this. And I noticed how the bees acted. They simply turned from whatever task they were doing, and they all had a task at that moment, and they all went, hmm, honey on the floor, that should be cleaned up. And they all together <laughs> marched down to the bottom and started sucking up the honey and moving it elsewhere. And I was just so amazed at how there was no grumpiness about, oh, that stupid girl, look at what she just did. There was no blame. There was no, it was nothing. It was just, and now here's another task to do and we'll do it. And, you know, I've carried that into my marriage and... That has made a world of difference when you take out guilt and blame and uh, vindictiveness or whatever, anger. When you remove those, it just becomes a lot of tasks to do that you can either do happy or you can do upset. <laughs> mm, I'm going to go for happy. <laughs> you know, and I notice it. My, my 
cat will eat a mouse and then throw up on the floor. And before, if I used to go, oh, uh, yuck, I would have an emotional <laughs> response to the task at hand. Now we go, oh, that was too much for you there, huh? You ate a little more than you could swallow. And, and one of us cleans it up. And it doesn't even matter, the two of, them in, two of us in the room, it doesn't even matter which one cleans it up. It's just go do the task. This, you know, and don't bring the charged emotion into it. Don't create an argument out of this. You know, what a silly idea. And does it help then to also have a a view of the bigger picture of like the unity that you're working towards so that it isn't about like, oh, whose fault is this? Whatever. It's like, oh, we just need to get this done to continue on with our mission. That's a good way to describe that. (laughs) So a lot of what the bees have been showing you it sounds like have also shaped the way you are living as a human. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Um, you know, I uh, when I work in my garden, I know that I'm a more compassionate person in the garden now. There's there's no right bugs and wrong bugs. There's no uh, you know everything is as it is. I can't get upset about the deer coming through and eating half the salad row that that night you know it's deer eat too if I don't have enough plant more (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know it it doesn't I don't need to blame or think anything is wrong other than what's happening right now it's does that make sense I totally it's just this is what it is yeah, and in a way, it's less human-centered, where it's like, well, that's my lettuce, and I grew it, and it was for my belly. It's like, well, we're just all part of the world here, and right, uh-huh. deer eat too, so. And and often the things that, you know, if the deer came in and ate it, well, I didn't put a fence up. You know, if things like that are, you know, I see my responsibility. If it's so precious to me, then make sure it stays that way without having a charged emotion on it. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. But frankly, I don't put the fence up. I share with the deer <laughs> because it just feels so more more right. I had one year where I planted 80 tomato plants up in the field. Do you know how many tomatoes that is? And I had deer come through, and they don't like tomatoes, so I didn't even bother to fence them, except for a young deer who will bite each one and go, mm, nope, don't like that. <laughs> I went through all 80 of my plants and took one bite out of every tomato. Still don't like it. Nope. Nope, not that one either. Oh, maybe the next tomato will be yummy. It was so funny. And I remember going up and standing there going, that is just plain funny. (laughs) I can't get upset about it. It's like, that's humor in the farm, in the gardens. It's like one bite out of all 80 tomato plants. (laughs) Well, I wanted to talk about another theme that really struck me in the book, which is sacrifice. Um, There seemed to be a distinct role of almost like a noble sacrifice in bee life, especially with drones and also hives that can't overcome disease for whatever reason. And bees that are at the end of their life, Mm -hmm. that there's an understanding of the death process that really surpasses most of what our human understanding is. We think we're supposed to stay alive as long as absolutely possible, and and the bees don't have that perspective at all. Mm. So when drones are done with their time of service, they're escorted out. And the same with an elderly an elderly female bee. Um, we, we call them maidens. Um, 
because that was what the beast said. After they explained that thing about the sound of their real name, they said, ah, but you can call them maidens. So we call them maidens now. The worker bees is what females. And when they finish their lifetime, you know, one time I remember watching bees going in and out of the hive. And then I saw an older bee, um, and I didn't realize she was an older bee. She went up to the door, and there were guard bees at the door, like there always are. And they went, nope, not for you. And she turned around and walked out, and she stopped and looked back at the doorway. And, and that was when I noticed that she was an older bee, and I could tell that because her wings were tattered. She'd flown miles bringing nectar and pollen back into the hive. And they said, you know, you're, you're at the end of your lifetime, so not coming back in today. And she started to walk up to the doorway just that one time, and they turned her around again. And then I thought, oh, but that's not right. This is me, the human, thinking that's not right. In the meantime, she had made her peace with that. She was like, oh, I am old. And if she had gone into the hive and died inside the hive, then the the janitorial bees that are in there that do all the cleanup would have had to carry her body out and fly it off and dump it somewhere. That's another task for the hive. In the hive's economy of the tasks that they do, it was actually better for the hive that she not come in and die inside. So when she turned around and started to walk off towards the end of, this is a hive that was on my second floor balcony, she started to walk towards the edge and I scooped her up and put her back at the door going, oh, and, ah, that's just my discomfort with the elder process here and dying. And I put her at the front door. She turned herself around and walked out. And I picked her up again, brought her back to the front door, and she just, mm-mm, uh-uh. And she turned around and she walked all the way to the edge of the roof and, boom, dropped herself right off into the rosemary bush and you know, didn't come back inside. And that really stuck with me. It was like she understood what her role was. She'd completed her service to the hive. There was no reason for her to go back inside. Her wings were very tattered. And that was the end of her lifetime. That was the end of her time of, of service to the colony. I think... That's pretty darn amazing that they have an understanding of when, is, when has life been sufficient? When have I done all I can do here? And then I pass on. Also with hives that contract illnesses or disease, or um, this is the same process. There's, at first they'll start, sometimes start to clean up. Let's say there's mold in the hive, and that's causing a bad disease process in the bees, they'll try to clean it up initially. Or it could be they have mites or some you know insect parasite. They'll try to clean up stuff initially, and then they'll either carry it on until everything's cleaned out and healthy and fine again, <clears throat> or, or they'll give up. And I've watched hives who I wanted to help. Let me, you know, I can... I'm the human. I can, I'm big. I can do things. Let me help you. And I could see that the hive had already decided that they were, they were fine on passing. Um, that's a whole different attitude about death. There's a sufficiency. I remember my grandfather, um, when I was younger, my grandfather, who's passed on now, I remember it. One time we were talking with him, my sister and I, and said, what are you thinking about, Pop? And he said, I was thinking about dying. And 
we were just kind of shocked. I was at my my family home with my young my sister, and we were planning her wedding. And she said, I remember her standing up. She went, "Pop, you can't die before my wedding. If you <laughs> die before my wedding, everybody's going to be there, and they're going to be thinking about." You wouldn't it been nice if you could have been there for the wedding, and it would just change the whole feeling of it. So you have to promise me you are not going to die before the wedding. And he said, okay. And then about a year later, after she was married, a year or two later, I remember talking to him one time, and he had this pensive look on his face. And I said, what are you thinking about? He said, you know, a little while ago, before the wedding, he said, I was going to die. And I knew the path to dying, but then I had to shut it off. And now I can't remember how to die again. And I just thought, what a tremendously insightful perception he had. And he wasn't a new age kind of guy or anything like that. He was just, I knew how to die, which would have been the naturalness of the process. And I've made myself shut it off and promised your sister. <laughs> and now I can't remember how to get there on my own. And I just thought, what a fascinating internal perception that we do have that, that we do know how to die in our sleep in old age without disease. Um, and what a beautiful process that, that could be. Mm-hmm. So I see that in the bees, that you know, they have an understanding of right timing, that there's right timing for this and there's a right situation for this, and this is the part where we let go. I remember you mentioning an overlighting being that will help the hive understand if it's time or not. That seemed to be who I was speaking with mm. when I spoke with the bees. It didn't seem to be, and people have often asked me that, did you speak to one bee? Was it one hive? Can you come talk to my hive? And it was never that kind of perception. It was like I was speaking with an overlighting being <laughs> that was responsible for the consciousness of all bees. And that's just a different perception. That's a, you know, that that's, how do you even say that? That's all the bees in the world that have been in the past and will be in the future and are here present. That's a consciousness that knows right action for all of them. And that seems to be who I was more connected to in, in this. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't pick a little bee up on my finger and go, hi, <laughs> and how are you doing today? And, you know, what a big bag of pollen you've got on your back legs. And, um, of course, I would do that too. But um, that's the overlighting being is the one I think who, I believe, who has that whole understanding of the true nature of the bees and where each of them belong, how they fulfill their life purpose. Well, speaking of their purpose, I would love to talk about pollination because there's something in the book about bees being so much more than what humans perceive and how we think that their purpose is acting out in the world. Um, And I have the excerpt here from your book in which the bees themselves say, pollination is so much more than cross-fertilization. Pollination is as much about enlivening the ether as it is about moving the reproductive forces. The trails we leave in the ether are webs of protection over the earth, we enliven the green world. That is our charge. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, I had a very naive perception of bees initially, too. It's like, gather nectar, make honey, pollinate the flowers. And I 
frankly just never had thought of anything beyond that. But I came to understand that there are so many other processes that they take part in. One of them is as they go from flower to flower. And you know, when you go out in a field, there's a bunch of flowers in one area. A group of flowers, and the bees are coming and visiting them, and they're saying, they're communicating to the flowers that over on this side, so let's say on the east side, there's a whole lot of a certain kind of mineral that's really good for this plant. But if you were to head over on this west side, not so much. So in that way, they're allowing the plants to gain some information about where is the most productive place for them to set their roots down or set their seed. So the bees are actually bringing the information to the flower. So these plants, as they're moving across the landscape, are able to know what's the most prolific areas, what's the most uh, economical places for them to be, what's the places that have the most food sources. So oh. there's a communication there. There's another part, too, which is when the bees are mating, when the queen goes to be impregnated by the drones, they do it in one very specific part of the landscape. And what's so interesting is every day at about 11 o'clock, all the drones, all the fertile boys go out and they'll fly off to a certain area, two to 500 feet off the ground. <laughs> and it's just this area where all the drones are flying in these big lemna skates, big figure eights. Oh. And they're waiting for the queens who come out around noontime and the queens start down at the bottom of the ground and they fly straight up. So when they shoot through, these are the virgin queens, when they shoot through that pile of drones, she's got a pheromone that says, I'm a virgin queen and I'm available and I'm looking for you, big boy. <laughs> <laughs> she shoots right up through that, straight up towards the sun and all the boys start to tra chase her, all the drones. And one by one, they as they catch her, they'll mate with her, they'll, they mate with her, and then they fall backwards off, and actually the penis breaks off in her, and all the sperm that's with it. The next drone that catches her will remove the prior drone's penis and stick his in and ejaculate, and, and then he falls backwards, his penis breaks off, and, and that process can take place for 12 to 20 different drones and she's flying towards the sun the whole time. There's a really interesting thing about that too. A drone doesn't have a, a functional penis until the g-force of chasing the queen actually pushes all his <laughs> the gravity down to the hind bottom end of him and that's what makes him capable of mating. So when the queen reaches the top of her flight to the sun and says okay that's enough at that point, she'll turn and fly back to the hive. When she does that, there's no point in the drones chasing her because they're not functional for mating at that point. She has enough sperm inside her at that moment for the next, oh, say five years of laying eggs. I find that astounding. She, when she starts to lay her eggs, she can lay her body weight in eggs every single day. Now that doesn't even make sense. Her body wow. in eggs every single day. And then the next day she's ready to do it again. And she preserves that, the sperm. She keeps it alive for five years inside of her. So what I brought that up for is because that process is 
the queen flying up toward the sun and she's delivering a message to the sun, to the cosmos, to the universe saying, we're here, we're here. And this is our state of health, of, of knowledge. And at that point, she's delivered her message and then she comes back to the hive and she becomes one queen going to one hive and, and comes, carries on with her purpose. But that process that happens, it's like an earth acupuncture point that these happen in. And when she is mated with, it activates the charge that stimulates the earth pulse in spring and brings that power of creativity, the power of creation, again into the earth. She's an integral part of that. Wow. It's like, how I'm, I'm amazed by it. And just the knowledge that every time a queen mates with a drone or the drones, there's that powerful stimulation to the earth that says yes now spring come create more like a true fertility right yes it's, it's exactly that a fertility right really everything that i learn about the bees through you really makes me wonder what humans roles and actions might be if we were living in our most harmonious and natural state because it seems to me that they're showing us that each species of of being has these particularly important roles and actions in the the planet's well-being and somehow humans have forgotten what it is. Yeah, but I think we come back to you know, are we are we meant to be the aggressive people that we're often being? You know, that where we say we are the top of the food chain and we're the top, we're the ones who make the decisions about whether the rivers flow or not or, you know, we tear down the rainforest. Um, you know, we make decisions that have huge implications that I don't think we're supposed to be doing. You know, it's more the bigger question and the harder question is how do we live in harmony? That, I think, is a more useful question to ask and one that requires a lot more understanding of our relationship with everything else in the world. That's a better question. And more humility. <laughs> more humility and respect. You know, I, I mm -hmm. come back to kind-heartedness and respect being the foundation of everything that we do. You know, and that is what I bring back into my marriage, my relationship with my friends, um, my relationship with my community. How do I, and you know I'm not perfect by any means, but when I ask myself how do I do that and be more kind-hearted, how do I do that and be respectful, then I learn something. And you know often the way we humans learn is because we do it screwed up first, mm -hmm. maybe a few times screwed up, and then we figure it out and go, huh, respect and kindness, warm-heartedness. That's probably more the direction I want to be going in. And also, so many modern folks feel so lonely and so isolated now. Mm -hmm. But it seems like, at least in your life, you're finding that you are surrounded by all of these beings who are here with us and have their own roles. Yes, every single one. It's, you know, it, it just as I'm even answering that, I'm thinking, you know, who, who went on a land? The snakes, the spiders, the, you know, everybody has a role and everybody should have the space to do that role instead of me making determinations about who's a good guy, who's a bad guy, who do I not like, who do I get freaked out about, who do I, you know, and, that, and, and I've, I think I've always been leaning in that direction anyway about being 
kind-hearted, um, but not always successful at it, being respectful, but not always being as respectful as I should be. Um, and that's been part of my development and my heart and soul's development is to, you know, how do I, how do I answer the hard questions with respect and kindness and, and a good heart? So that's, you know, till the day I die, I'll probably be still working on better answers for each of those questions. <laughs> yeah. As you speak about the heart, I remember in the book, there was something about when you're near the hum of the hive, that it does something to your heart in terms of, I don't know if it feels like enlivening or soothing or opening. I think it brings me back to myself. That's the way I feel when I'm around. And I know, I mean, I, I lose a sense of time. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, the, I'll be right back, honey. I'm going to go pick some lettuce, <laughs> which should take me four minutes max. And I'll come back, and it's been like 45 minutes. <laughs> and I can't believe that much time has passed because all I did was stop to listen to the sound of the hive. And... You know, that's, but then I go into that space where I'm sure you've experienced it and probably everybody listening has. It's a timeless place where there's a contentment within us. And that song that they sing, that hum of a, of a healthy, happy hive, it just, oh, it just induces me right into it. That's so beautiful. So anytime you need to come back, you can walk over and tap into that. Well, we have a little bit more time, and I was curious if there's anything in particular that you find you'd like people to know about bees or that often people misunderstand about bees? Well, first of all, everyone thinks they want to save the bees by becoming a beekeeper, and I think that's, I'm so glad you asked that because I really strongly believe that is not the path to it. You know, if we could, you know, I've, I don't even have regular hives anymore. I stopped taking honey years ago. I do get honey sometimes, but it will be from a hive that, that doesn't make it through the winter or dies for some reason. And that's where I do my honey harvest. We had, um, the year before last, we had forest fires that came within 10 miles here. And I hadn't been taking honey for a few years, so I didn't have very much at all. But because the fires were so close by, we had heavy, thick smoke in the area for a full month. And then two weeks later, we still had smoke in the air, it just wasn't quite as bad. That was in the early fall. And that was the time when all the baby bees would have been being developed and hatching out into the fall so that they'd carry the hive over the winter. Well, when the smoke came in, the queens stopped laying because if a fire is gonna come, they, they certainly wouldn't wanna leave their babies behind. So she just stopped laying. And that meant by the time she picked up again, so many weeks had passed, and bees have a short lifespan. They usually only live about six weeks. There were no new bees to take over. So these fall bees, whoever was left, was carrying them into the early part of winter, and then one by one, each of my hives died. And I lost all but two hives, uh, three hives, all but three hives. And those hives were actually in trees the way nature would have done it. Oh. And I had, I had two trees that um, at different times had been cut down before people realized bees were in them and I brought them home and set them up up in the field. And there was something in the 
the naturalness of the hive proper in a tree, that those bees actually survived. They carried on. Maybe it's the way that they direct airflow through or something. But all of the hives that I had that were in human-made boxes of some type, even good ones, even very alternative ones, none of those bees made it. So I had a tremendous honey harvest that year. It was a sad harvest because it was representative of so many colonies that didn't make it through the smoke. And that was really a hard time. I was able to collect enough honey that, you know, it will last me years and years. And I'm very judicious with it. I don't put honey in my tea to sweeten it up because that really isn't... Um, Raw honey loses its nutritional capacity, so it's like putting sugar in your tea, really. I don't bake with it. It's, it's, once you heat it, it's like you're using sugar. Um, I treat it more like some, uh, it's more like a, it's a holy substance. You know, the bees said that honey is food made in prayer, and that's one of, probably my favorite line in the in, of everything they've ever told me. Honey is food made in prayer because it's the, all the bees working together in service to carry forth the, the life of the colony. I love that. Th these bees died, and they did service. And now, in, if that was in nature, what would happen is that those little pockets of honey would be left in the trees that didn't, um, that, you know, didn't succumb to the fire. And in the coming year, when the flowers were trying to regroup and, you know, there probably wouldn't be the flourishing habitat that there was prior, that would be any hives that were available in the area could find those pockets that were saved and help replenish the next bees that are coming, the ones that did survive. So that's an important thing to see the, the long-term process of how in nature these things are used for different purposes than just human harvest. So I, I leave a lot behind, a lot behind the majority of it. Yeah. And what, so what can people do who want, who want to help the bees? Like, what would you recommend? So rather than being a beekeeper, I'd say become a gardener because that's the task that's really needed in the world. Um, if we can for those of us who are beekeepers, if we can create ways that replicate the ways bee, that bees have always lived in nature, like in log hives, for example, and that's the direction I've gone off in. I don't harvest, they live in trees. Um, we make hollowed out trees that we give them to live in. And that's a direction I feel really strongly about letting bees live in nature the way that nature intended them to live. And then everybody else, go grow flowers, <laughs> make gardens that are organic and wonderful and have wonderful nutrition in the soil that gives strong plants to keep everybody, humans, bees, animals, everybody happy and healthy. I think that's more the direction that I would love to guide people in. And you're doing a service to the bees. You know, it's I, I read something a while ago that said that for every colony that you have, it takes about a dedicated acre of floral, of, of flowers, to keep that hive going for a year. I mean, that's a lot mm -hmm. of, of flowers that are necessary, that are needed. So it's up to us to go out there and 
put more effort into that. And it was interesting that there are particular flowers that are easier for bees to find and that they oh, like yeah. better. Can you yes. tell me about those colors? Well, first of all, the, their eyes see color very differently than we. And when people plant them, um, plant flowers, you know, I had a lot of things growing in my garden in my first few years, which were like um, Asian lilies. Well, I have European honeybees that have, you know, managed to live in North America quite well for the last few hundred years, but they didn't have a clue what an Asian lily was. And they were beautiful. They were glistening and they looked like they had pollen dripping all over them. And my bees just went, ah, never seen that before. <laughs> Not going over there. So I dug them all up and gave them away. And um, and I started looking into what, what are bees like? Well, that wasn't too hard. That was like, look around and see where they are. Bees are on herbs, grow flowering herbs. Just if you had to pick one thing to do, grow flowering herbs, the bees will love that. And they take their medicines from it too. So it isn't just the food. It's the, the pollen and the nectar and the essential oils that they make their healing medicines, their propolis out of. So that's really important. Um, the colors that they like, first of all, are the blues and the purples, and then the second colors are the whites, and then we go to the yellows, and last of all is the reds. They're just not that big on red. Red, however, is great for hummingbirds, so it has a role in your garden. It's just a little different. And another thing when you're planting is to plant in clumps. So remember, in pollination, a, a bee is going from one plant and carrying some pollen to the next. So if you have one dinky little lavender plant on your front porch and next to it you've got a little rosemary plant and then you've got some oregano that's just not worth the bee making all that effort to get there there's not enough of it so it's better that you actually plant in clumps where I have about 20 25 lavender plants all in a row and they just kind of curve around and you know if anybody lands on that be it honeybee or bumblebee or little native bees there's plenty of them to go to, and they're really worth the effort. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that would, be a, that would be a big piece of advice there. And also, I do want to mention, I'm particularly fond of all these little native bees that we have. And you could help them all a great deal by having little pockets of messiness in your garden. <laughs> Let me give you a free ticket on <laughs> not neat in the garden because the garden, when you have these places where there's stick piles and, and uh, you know, clumps of dirt that you don't do anything with, that's where the little bees lay their eggs or where they, um, the butterflies lay their, or turn into their cocoons. The, well, the caterpillars do their cocoons. Hmm. The leaf litter that's on the garden floor is um, places where insects winter over. So mm. all of these things that we think make for a messy, unneat garden are actually things that would help nature a great deal if we would let ourselves stop being so picky and let a little bit of confusion reign in the garden. I so love that. That's the one day we were taking off some turf, some grass, and we were planting plants in it. And I had we had taken off these big clumps of dirt, and we just made a big pile. It was probably, you know, a six foot by six foot pile and we were going to move those over to the compost pile and I didn't get to it and probably about two weeks later I went oh yeah that's a job we didn't get the wheelbarrows out we should go move those and then I went over and looked and I saw all these little pokey holes 
like someone had took a the lead of a pencil and just stuck it in here and there. And I looked at them and went, what the heck are those? And they were dirt bees. They were making their little domicile in the dirt. And you know, they, they particularly like dirt that had been kind of ruffled up a little bit. So I remember Aww. going, oh, good. That, ta- that task is taken <laughs> care of. I can't move them now because little baby bees or little bees are living in there. And, and that for years became just a pile of dirt that we let the little native bees live in. I, I just find that, to me, that's really exciting because I become part of that process then by not being neat, by not trying to um, take over and put my version of what nature should look like it all becomes much more, uh, much more practical, and and practical in the most glorified way you could say that. It's once once we do that, we become part of nature again instead of the dominant force in, in pushing our will onto nature. And what strikes me about what you said is paying attention because mm-hmm. some folks might just walk up with a pitchfork and a wheelbarrow and just dump dump that where they wanted it so yeah. slowing down a little bit mm-hmm. and noticing well is there any last thing that you want to share about your book or your work about the bees in general before we wrap up i have a nonprofit that i started uh, three years ago with my friend susan nylands it's called preservation beekeeping and all of these kind of ideas are on our facebook site and our preservationbeekeeping.com, our website. And then I have a website called spiritbee.com. Wonderful. Well, again, I highly recommend your book, Song of Increase. I really just love this book so much. And I think that it brings so much to anyone's life, no matter if you've never kept bees, don't ever think you even will. It's, It's just like good wisdom for living it's, it's natural wisdom yes wisdom it's go. song of increase listening to the wisdom of honeybees for kinder beekeeping and a better world and the better world part is what i'm most most interested in is how do we do that and it's in four languages now it's in english dutch french and it just came out in spanish oh my gosh so, so it's it's making its journey around the world <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you for this opportunity to let people know that there's a much deeper, richer depth to bees and all of nature. Mm, Thank you so much. It was an honor to speak with you, and thank you so much to the bees. Thank you for listening to the show. You can hear other episodes on moontent.co or subscribe to the Moonwise podcast on iTunes or Spotify. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes and leave a review. You can also leave a comment on the Moonwise Sisterhood group in Facebook. Our theme music is by Sophie Cooper from her album Rewilding. She's sharing brand new offerings over at voicealchemy.com, so go check out her work there. See you next time. Mm-hmm.